Would you please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and as you go there, we're going to look at uh, a message from Jesus to a local church. And contextually, as you turn there, uh, we're in a series called Build at Metro Life Church right now. It's a series about the local church, and Aaron Law, one of the pastors there, he's sort of doing the last... um, body message, if you will, to that series this morning. It's a message on the New Jerusalem, when the church culminates, when there's no more visiting you by airplane or really long car rides, we will be together in the New Jerusalem. All sanctification will be complete. The blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear. It's going to be glorious. Well, right before that series started, we, we were in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in between the two, we, we paused here for, for what we felt was something the Lord wanted to bring to our attention. And, and as I did pray and send some thoughts to Keith, uh, this, this I believe is what the Lord uh, laid on my heart. But before we read the passage, uh, some of you may be uh, seasoned enough in life to remember a comic strip named Pogo. Anybody? For those of you who are younger and have no idea, if you've ever seen Donald Duck, well, the same guy who wrote Pogo is the same person who created Donald Duck for Walt Disney. Uh, Pogo was a comic strip a a little before my time, but it was very popular and in syndication from the late 50s to early 70s, and then other newspapers would pick it up over the years. Uh, And and Walt Kelly, the creator of Pogo and also Donald Duck, uh, would would use animal characters in his comic strip to comment on the human condition. He would would provide political commentary and and other social commentary through animals. And, And I believe what would probably be his most famous comic strip, there was this phrase. And the phrase was this, we have met the enemy and he is us. We have met the enemy And he is us. And I believe that phrase is an apt description, a summary of what was going on in the church in Sardis that is recorded in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And so would you read this with me and then let's pray together. This is a letter from Jesus to a local church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, don't throw anything yet. I'm going to explain. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The greatest danger in our relationship with Jesus 
is us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence here with us this morning in Lakeview Christian Center. Thank you for your presence all over the world today where brothers and sisters for whom one day we will fellowship with, you are there with them as you are here with us. Thank you for this letter that you preserved to the church in Sardis. Lord, it is first a letter to them, but, but you end that letter as you do the other ones in Revelation with this call. He who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, let him hear. And so, Lord, this morning, we ask you for ears to hear. This is not a letter to Lakeview, But there are things you might want Lakeview to hear, even as you want Metro Life Church to hear that you did share with the church in Sardis. All of your word is preserved, living and active for us to prosper. Prosper us now by giving us ears to hear what you would say to Lakeview through what you did say to the church in Sardis. We pray and we ask Spirit of God for you to fall Because you and you alone know how to reach into the recesses of every heart here gathered so that this word isn't general, but it specifically ministers to individuals by name. Would you do this, we pray, for your glory and for the good of Lakeview. Amen. Now, let me make a massive qualifying statement. Sardis is not Lakeview Christian center. None of your pastors said, would you please stand up and then after waxing nostalgia about LSU, would you then tell the church that you think we're dead? That is not what happened at any point this weekend. And I do not think that quite the contrary. There are so many demonstrations of the Spirit of God at work in your midst. And there are Numerous ways that could be recounted. I mean, just just your offering last week for the Philippines as one example. I'm sure to spend just a little bit of time interacting, there would be so many ways in which I would hear that, oh my, the Spirit of God is on the move in Lakeview. There is so much health in the local church. And that's true at Metro Life Church. By the grace of God, we're going forward as a local church. Now, having been there three Almost three years, uh, three years beginning in December, uh, I, I can see it. It's measurable. There, there, there's something different going on in our midst. Metro had gone through a, a, a very challenging and refining season. And I see us on, maybe not completely the other side, but certainly well down the road. And so there's so much to celebrate and be joyful about. We've got more people prioritizing the local church than, than in my three years there who value the local church, who are throwing their lives into the local church. We've got more people serving in, in significant ministries than at any other point. And it's very, very encouraging. And so the danger in preaching a passage like this is that the church hears the wrong message, and I don't want you to hear the wrong message. However, I think there's a greater danger, and the greater danger would be to not preach it. The greater danger would be to act as if it has nothing to say to us, but all of God's Word has something to say to us. Every single page has gospel truth for you and for me individually and for us corporately. It's preserved for a reason. 
Two reasons primarily, the glory of God and our growth in Him. So I believe this letter to the church in Sardis was preserved that we might learn. And Kevin DeYoung, in a, in a blog post on the Gospel Coalition website, he's a pastor uh, up in Michigan, he, he said the following, this is a little long, longer than I, I'm comfortable usually sharing, but I think you'll get the flow of this, and, and it kind of touches on what are these seven letters to the church is doing in the book of Revelation anyway? What are we supposed to take from them today? This is what he says. What does Jesus want to say to the church in the West, to the church in North America, to the church in the South or in New England or in the Midwest? What does Jesus want to say to Lakeview Christian Center? He didn't say that. I just inserted that. That all depends What is your church like? Where are you strong? Where are you weak? We live in a big country with hundreds of thousands of churches. If you think the issue out there is too much law, you'd be right. If you think the issue is cheap grace, you'd be right about that too. Jesus wouldn't say just one thing to the church in this country, let alone in the West or in the world, because the church in this country is diffuse and diverse. If Jesus had seven different letters for the churches in Asia Minor, I imagine he'd have more than one thing to say to the churches in North America. Ephesus was your listless, loveless church. They were orthodox, moral, and hardworking. But they weren't concerned about the lost and may not have been too concerned about each other. They were doctrinally sound navel gazers. To them and to us, Jesus says, love. Smyrna was your persecuted 1040 window church. They were afflicted, slandered, and impoverished, but they were spiritually rich. They were vibrant but fearful. To them and to us, Jesus says, be faithful. Pergamum was your ungrounded, youth-infused church. They were faithful, passionate witnesses, but they'd compromised with the world and accommodated to their sexually immoral and idolatrous culture. They were missional but misguided. To them and to us, Jesus says, discern. Theatira was your warm-hearted, liberal church. I just saw a bumper sticker at the light out here this morning. Christian but liberal on the way in. They were strong in compassion, service, and perseverance. But they undervalued doctrinal fidelity and moral purity. They were loving but over-tolerant. To them and to us, Jesus says, think. Philadelphia was your small, storefront, urban church. They felt weak and unimpressive. But they kept the word of God and not denied his name. They were a struggling, strong church. I love that phrase. To them and to us, Jesus says, press on. Laodicea was your ritzy, influential church out in the leafy part of town. They thought that they had it all together. But they were spiritually poor as they were material rich. The church was filled with affluence and apathy. To them and to us, Jesus says, be earnest. Sardis was your flashy and successful, but ultimately shallow megachurch. They were like your big Bible Belt churches, chock full with nominal Christians. They had a great reputation, but in reality, they were spiritually dead. They were the church of the whitewashed tombs. To them and to us, Jesus says, wake up. We all tend to see certain errors more clearly than others. Nothing wrong with that. As long as we see our own dangers most clearly and don't presume that every church has the same problems. We must pay attention to the whole counsel of God. We need to study all of it and preach from all of it, not just the stuff that hits our sweet spot. 
God has a word for all of us if we're willing to look hard enough and willing to listen. So that's the question. What is the word God would have for Lakeview from the letter to the church in Sardis? What, what can we hear from Jesus' letter to Sardis? Well, I want to offer you really just a few simple things. Three of them, in fact. The first is this, and this is applicable whether or not we're in this place. Again, I think that's why these letters are preserved. They're preserved that we can learn, right? They're here so that before we get in the same predicament as them, we might respond to the Spirit of God. Amen? That we don't have to repeat all of that. So the first is this. What can we hear from Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis? I think the first one would be this. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay watchful of spiritual coma. Verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You see, Jesus wants them to understand the difference between reputation and reality. He wants them to understand the difference between what those who pass through town say and what he says. About them, I, I, I think another way to describe the, the, the opposite of, of awake, it, it, it's asleep, but it, it's not literal sleep. I think the better word, and we talked about this as brothers a little bit yesterday, I think the better word is apathy. Stay awake to the danger of apathy or arrival. And I think this is a, a word we, we've got to get more and more accustomed to in our day. Apathy abounds in the church of God. I mean, even the ability to listen to a sermon for 35 to 45 minutes what, what was once normal is now a challenge because we're living in a time, even technologically, where everything's coming fast all the time, right? Right? You know, teens, I don't want to speak for you because I'm 40 and so I know you would think of me as a dinosaur, but if I have any relevance with you at all, you know, even texting is getting old because it's so many words. It's just so many words. You know, my kids tell me, no, no, Snapchat now. It's got to be under 10 seconds. You know, you got to get it in, get it out, bada bing, bada boom, you know. We don't have time for 35 minutes, dude. That's like eternity. It's like our attention spans are constantly getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's constantly got to be the next best thing. I mean, you see this even like with Apple. It's like unless Apple hits a grand slam every time they make a product announcement, it's like negativity. Yeah, I mean, my goodness, like look at the size of these things. And this is a dinosaur. This is a four. Some of you got fives already. Like, look at that fat phone he's got. So big and heavy. I don't have time for that. I mean, do you remember your Apple IIe? How many of you had one of those beasts in your house? All 90 pounds of that thing. It could barely do anything. But it's like there's this, this assumption now that no, no, it's always got to be more, 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 better, 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 faster, faster, faster. The other side of that is the things that take time, the things that, that require perseverance, we get apathetic to. We don't have time for that. Apathy can, can look like so many things in the church. You know, I was thinking of a few of these, I think. 
when we get apathetic, when we, when we cease to be awake, pay attention, what was once vibrant participation becomes sporadic participation. Once was excitement for getting in on what was going on among God's people and specifically in local churches, it, it just it starts to lose its luster a bit. When I'm apathetic, I, I start to locate the challenges in my life more outside of me instead of within me. But here, here's a, I, I think, a telltale sign in my own life of, of, of when I'm, I'm drifting to sleep or potentially getting there. And, and, and the applications are many. I'm not trying to say these are yours. But for me, it can even be devotional spasms. Do you know what I mean by that? Devotional spasms. You know, there can still be the devotion, but kind of like, you know, it's, it's what I should do, so I better do it, versus vibrancy. I'm going to encounter God. And all that, you know, just, just even the ability, the ability to, to close a door, be in a quiet place with the Lord for a little while, when, when so many things are screaming all around. You know what I'm talking about? Paul Tripp, there's a wonderful book called Dangerous Calling. The only thing I don't like about the book is the title. And the reason is because it reads, the title reads like it's just for pastors, but I, I, would, I would advocate every church member should read Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. In that book, he says this, and, and I apologize for the length of this quote. The lack of a meditative, Christ-centered devotional life it's not just the result of the seemingly unending demands of life. It's the product of a rival. I'm convinced that when busyness intersects with a rival, one of the first things that goes is private worship. Perhaps it's a combination of fear and gratitude that drives us to our knees and into communion with Christ each morning. It is, it is when we face who we are and the fickleness of our hearts that we feel the need to have our hearts recaptured morning after morning. It's when we reflect on the fact that Sin is not always a horror to us, but sometimes appears positively attractive, that we want to run into the protective arms of the Lord again and again. It's when we consider the dangerous temptation of this fallen world that we want to get help for the battle day after day. It's when we fear our own weakness that drives us to the Savior for strength. It's when we fear the power of foolishness that still remains in us that we're propelled to daily seek the wisdom that can be found only in the pages of Scripture. A humble and holy fear is a major part of what propels a consistent life of daily personal worship. So, Aaron, when you've forgotten who you are, when you assign to yourself more maturity than you actually have, and when you think you're more capable than you really are, you leave yourself little reason to seek the ongoing help of your Savior. I think that's what happened in Sardis. They thought they arrived. They thought they'd reach that place where they could throttle back. And I think it's a process. I imagine for them it probably wasn't noticed at first. But isn't that the very nature of it? You know, we, we begin to fall asleep when we, when we stop being alert or when we stop watching. And it doesn't start outside. It starts within what happened for the church in Sardis. Now, not every single person there, but for many. They had a reputation for being alive when in reality they were drifting 
toward a spiritual death. They were inattentive to themselves, and that was their greatest danger. I think too often we think the greatest dangers uh, are out there, right? The greatest danger is what's on the television screen. The greatest danger is what's advertised. The greatest danger is this, that, and the other thing. In reality, it's right here. Those things can only affect to the degree of what's going on in here. In their case, and this is the fascinating part about the letters to the seven churches, in their case, they, they, they knew this not only symbolically, but literally. A little bit of history on Sardis. Sardis was a city that had been attacked twice in its history. Sardis was up on this mountain. This just very difficult place to reach. And the city had walls all around it with these watchtowers. And there appeared to be no way up into the city. It was considered an impenetrable city because of its location on the hill and with its rampart walls that couldn't be scaled. And with that alone, that was sufficient, but they had these watchtowers as well so that should anybody actually find a way, they would have been discovered. But here's what happened. Two times the city was attacked. How many soldiers, how many men do you think were in the watchtower at the time of the attack? You guessed it. None. No one was in the watchtower. No one was watching. Now, whether or not Jesus had those moments in history in mind, I I do not know. But the spiritual and physical parallel in Sardis could not be more clear. They needed to watch. They needed to stay diligent. And they stopped watching. They were no longer diligent because they grew apathetic. They were falling, if you will, asleep. They were complacent and they were nominal. And I can think of two words that are more dangerous in our walk with the Lord than complacent and nominal. I fear those words in my own life. They needed to be watchful and awake. They were the opposite. Did you know no commandment appears more in the New Testament than the command to watch? To stay awake, to be alert. Just a couple examples. We're to watch and stay alert for the devil's schemes, right? We're to watch and stay alert for false teaching. We're to watch and stay alert for the Lord's return. But, but even more frequently than these, we are told again and again from Jesus to watch and stay alert against temptation. In reality, against ourselves. See, that's the nature of temptation. It's to wait for unguarded moments. That's what happened in Sardis. The way history reports it anyway is there were those who were watching, except it wasn't the soldiers of Sardis. It was the enemy watching. And they happened to notice one day a soldier scaled down and then scaled back up this particular spot on the wall. Because no one was on the watchtower, the enemy soldiers went right up to that wall and noticed, look at this, they've actually got these like climbing things in the crevice of the wall. There's our pathway up. Oh, we're not going to be able to get close because they're watching. No, they're not. We're going to scale right up that wall. And that's what they did. Temptation can be just like that, looking, lurking, wait, ah, There's their weakness. There's their weakness. See, here's what I'm learning in my own life. If I start living like I don't need to be recaptured by the greatness of Jesus morning after morning, I am making myself pray to temptation. If I wake up thinking, I've got this today, I'm okay. 
I've left myself vulnerable. See, watchfulness is to lead to strengthening what remains. Sardis was in danger of the little spiritual vigor they had left disappearing altogether. And the danger wasn't that someone out there was going to come along and snuff it out. The danger was within themselves. But the message of hope to them, though, was that the fire wasn't completely gone and could be rekindled. That's why Jesus is speaking to them. That's the mercy of God. Sometimes we can read these things and think, my goodness, how harsh, how un-2013 of you to say such things. The reality is Jesus is saying them before they're too far gone. That's always his mercy coming to us. He's saying, no, no, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains. There's still something remaining there. And that's a message of hope. And I was thinking about this. I remember back in college, I was a camp counselor. And each week of camp, kids would come for one week at a time. We would have uh, one campout night each week, and uh, there's sort of this unspoken rule among the counselors that you only got to take one match out on your campout. So when you lit that fire for dinner on Wednesday night, that was it. You know, you had to keep that thing going through breakfast on Thursday morning. Well, one of my campers woke up a little earlier in the rest, and he joined me by the fireplace in the morning, and he knew we were cooking breakfast over the fire, and he's looking at this fire. And, and he was a city kid, probably, you know, did, didn't see campfires too much where he came from. But he just asked, uh, how are we going to cook breakfast since the fire's out? And I just asked him, is it? Is the fire out? Well, what he was alluding to was that there was no flame. There was no visible flame rising. But I, I told him, I said, grab a stick. And he grabbed it and came over and said, just, just start moving it around, okay? Just, just start moving it in, in, in that ash. And let's see what happens. And he's moving it, and he sees a little orange over here and a little orange over there. Like, all right, let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can bring those together, okay? Let's pile them up. Just move them together with the stick. And so we're moving them together. Now now we got like a little pile of of orange. Like, okay, be careful here, but lean down. Lean down in there a little bit, not not all the way, just a little bit, and just start to blow gently. Let's see what goes on there. Now the orange is getting brighter and bright. Great, great. Okay, here's a couple twigs. Let's let's put them on there. All right, here's a look. Let's put that on there. About five minutes later, we've got a fire. We've got wood. We're, we're, We're a roaring fire again right there in that fireplace. The point was, We had to strengthen what remained. We had to take what was there, bring it back together, and strengthen it so that it could burn again. And the way we did that was through agitating those coals together. See, the fire didn't start roaring again all by itself. It it needed some agitation to strengthen what remained. And, And I wonder, are any of us in that place this morning? In our own walks with the Lord, did we come in here this morning where, where perhaps what was once a, a, a roaring fire of faith and vigor and zeal and passion and love for Jesus Christ and His purposes on the earth and in this local church, have some things dampened that. Have some trials or tribulations affected that. Does it feel like ash where there was once a flame. Well, I, I don't know if that does describe you or not or somewhere in the process, but could I just encourage you? The, the reason I believe Jesus preserved this letter is, if you will, in a way to say, 
the flame is not gone. It just needs agitated. It needs rekindled. It needs to be brought back together. I think Jesus preserved this passage so that we would know what to do in those times. Even if our zeal for God, our hunger for holiness, or love for his people, if even in some way that's diminished, that doesn't mean it's gone out, does it? It doesn't mean it's beyond restoration. Strengthening starts, though, by remembering. I think that's where he goes next, verse 3. So we need to stay awake. Wake up, he says in verse 2. But then look at, look at the primary. Look at how wake up begins. I love this. Waking up again to the things of God, the purposes of God in your life, in your local church, and in the world. They don't begin by, how many works do I have to do, Jesus? What do I got to perform? What do I have to work up to get back there? No, it begins by remembering. Remember what? Remember then what you have received and heard. In other words, how do you get your passion back for Jesus Christ if you need it restored to some degree? By remembering. Remembering Him. Remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remembering, if you will, the thrill of when you first believed. And I think it's remembering the how, not just the what. See, Jesus is telling the church in Sardis to tap their memory. Go back to that time in your life when you encountered Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. How many of you remember that time? Whether you know the day or the season, but do you remember the time when your heart came alive to Jesus Christ. Do you remember? And I don't mean, do you remember what you heard, but do you remember how it transformed you when you heard it, when you first believed? Now, I think I've shared this with you before here. For anybody new, I was 16 years old when I came to Jesus Christ. Been 24 years. I was in the act of, of committing burglary. <laughs> Slacks and sweater and tie. <laughs> Here's the mercy of God. A year and a half later, I was treasurer of a campus ministry. <laughs> we were broke. It didn't really matter. <laughs> I was kneeling down by my car because I'd calculated, measured this out with my friends, likelihood one of them is going to get caught, so I'm not going to go in this factory to take the things we're going to take with them. I'm going to stay outside, and I'm leaning down just like this. And I'm not saying this is everybody's story, but I tried to stand up, and I couldn't. I didn't see anyone, but it was though there were hands holding me down. And I just heard this internal voice, I know all about you. And tonight, you're mine. I didn't know what that meant. All I knew to do was when my friends came out with the stuff, I told them, put it back. None of them questioned it. I have no idea. I don't know if like the veil of Moses was on my face. I don't know. Not, I, don't know. I, I mean, look at me. I'm not like this intimidating guy. I run because I'm not big enough for any other sport, you know? They took it back. I got home. I asked my mom, do we have a Bible in the house? We had one. My mom looked a little puzzled. Found it. I did the only thing I knew to do. Went in my room, closed the door, opened the Genesis. This is the beginning of the book, right? 
Now I tell people, start in John or something. I don't know why I tell them that, but I started in Genesis. And I was midway through Leviticus when the sun rose and it was time to go to school. And I walked into my independent literature class, i.e. glorified study hall, and asked Mr. Murphy if I could change my reading contract. I was midway through Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. And I asked him if I could wipe out my contract and reset it and read the Bible. He said, how much of it? All of it. It was a big, bulky, old, smelly King James Bible. And I carried that thing all over school, oblivious to anything about fear of man, evangelism. I didn't know any of that. Nothing. I remember a few weeks later, this person on the phone asking me, are are you saved? Because you seem very different. I got none of the Christian lingo. What do you mean? And they explained the gospel. I said, I I think I am. But being unsure, again, not knowing anything, I got off the phone. And I'll never forget this. I don't know why I did this. I opened the blinds. (laughs) I kneeled on my bed and I opened the blinds to make sure Jesus could see me or something. I don't know. (laughs) I have no no idea. (laughs) It just seemed like the thing to do. I think I was already saved. And that, that, see, that's the beauty. You know, it's, it, it's not about a formula. It's not about, did you get the right words? Oh, when God changes a heart, when you go from death to life, it's undeniable. Do you remember? Not just what. Do you remember the how? And, and, and let's take this a little further. Even, even as you go back down memory lane in a way here this morning... Is there, here's the right way. Is there a right kind of grief going on right now of, oh Lord, I don't, I don't know when, I don't know where, but the way that used to stoke my heart, it, you know what I'm talking about? It, it's, I got a little less passion when I retell it now. There's a little less fire when I retell it now. And so I think of those wonderful songs that we sang in the 90s. If you're a teen, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But Stuart Town and my first love. I never want to lose that fire. Remember that song? I never want to lose that fire. My first love. And we danced a ridiculous looking dance to that song. I'm glad that's over because that was just embarrassing. If you remember it. It's like pogo sticks except none of us had pogo sticks. But I do, I do want those feelings. Now listen, our, our faith isn't rooted in feelings but our faith should infuse and affect our feelings. See, Jesus isn't telling the church in Sardis, I want you to go out and do 19 things to restore your passion for me. Nope. Just one thing. Just meditate on me. Remember me. 
Remember what I've done for you. That's all I want you to do. Keep the gospel, if you will. See, that, 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 sometimes we go down memory lane for the wrong reasons, and sometimes we go down memory lane and we like rewrote the memory lane. It's not even the right one. Like Israel, remember, out in Egypt, oh, we used to eat hamburgers, and why well, you want to go back there? Like, no, you never did that. You never, ever did that. You're just rewriting your history. Stop going down memory lane. But sometimes there's a right way to go down memory lane when it takes you back to your first love. It takes you back to those times of passion and fervor and fire. That's how we keep the gospel. That's how we keep the message of grace. That's how we keep on keeping it. That's how we hold it, cherish it, nourish it. And then what do we do after that? This is right here. Remember then what you've received and heard, verse 3. Keep it and repent. Now, repent has fallen on deaf ears, got a bad reputation. I think sometimes we narrowly define that word as, uh, as the response to a certain sin. And it can be that. But, but repentance more broadly just means, you know what, I was going this way, I want to turn around and go this way. Repent is about a 180 degree. And so, in this case, Lord, I, you know what, Lord, I have not been meditating on and remembering what you did for me on the day I first believed and I want to stop and I want to turn around and I want to go back and I want to be in that parking lot again and I want to be kneeled down by the car and I want to remember how you melted my heart and you changed me and I couldn't resist telling everybody about your love even in my arrogance and my ignorance and my immaturity. I just wanted everybody to have what I have and I just want to get that back. I repent. I see apathy, Lord. I want passion. I see complacency, Lord. I want action. I used to be one of the first ones to arrive, Lord, and now I can't seem to make it before the end of the second song. I used to be eager to give. Now I'm holding on. You fill in the blanks, you know? The greatest danger in my relationship with Jesus is me. Why does this matter? Why is this here? I don't fully know, but a couple suggestions for you, Lakeview. You are here right now, which means God is not done. Which means God has good gospel intentions that he wants to fulfill in your city through you. That's why you're here. And he's not done, which means if you'll go back to that little picture of a fireplace and if you're looking at it and you're not sure where the flame went... believe what he wants to do, maybe, for some of us this morning, is take that, that stick, which is his mercy, and, and just prod around, poke around our heart, help us to see, wait, there's, there's something in there. There's some, there's, some, there's some glow. And there's a little over there and a little over there. And he's going to pull that together. Individually first, then corporately. 
because he's not done. He's not done. He's not done working through you. He's not done revealing himself to you. He's not done growing you and changing you. He's not done using you because he's not done. Don't you Lakeview Christian Center be done. Amen? Don't you be done with yourself. Don't you be done with your local church. Don't you be done with the purposes of God that he is uniquely designed for you and you alone to fulfill. Jesus has not given up on you or me, so we must not give up and settle for less than what he has. Instead of looking at that fire and only remembering, we repent. Lord, take it. Stoke it, agitate it, bring it back. And what happens when that happens? I shared this with the brothers yesterday. Why this matters, why I think Revelation 3 is here. I think it's a part of something God uses for a word that I I pray you cherish and I pray you want. And that is revival. I think Revelation 3 is preserved for times of revival. And I think we're in a season, and by, by we, I think the church of God, not, not Lakeview, not Metro, not SGM churches, I think the church in general at large is in a season where we're getting agitated for revival. If you notice something about revival in biblical and church history, it always begins in the same place. And where is that place? The church. In God's house, in God's people. And, and, and revival, see, it, it doesn't begin with how many more numbers there are and numbers increasing. It's about hearts getting shaken and thirsting again for the glory of God in our lives individually and in our church corporately. And I, I asked for Keith's permission. He didn't ask me to do this. I, I want to share this with you. It's subjective. But I share it with you in love. I share it with you as a brother. And it, it may not be applicable to all. But, but even, even in worship this morning. See, I remember when Melissa and I made our first visit to Metro Life Church. It was our fourth time there. But there was something about that time where it just felt like this was in July of 2010. There was just, there was just something over the church. It, it, it wasn't the vibrancy, the joy, the passion, the life that we'd known from prior visits. And I'm not saying, that's not the same thing here this morning, but I just want to say this to you in love. There's something different here. Can you receive that? There, there, there's, I don't know what, it, maybe just some individuals, maybe we've been going through some hard times or whatever, but maybe, maybe there's a good number of us who, if you will use that fireplace again, we feel like we're in that place. You know, instead of there being a lot of roaring fires, there's, there's some coals that need agitated. And stirred up. And, and that, that's not necessarily over the whole church, but remember something. We are individually members together, right? So if this person over here, or that one over there is in some way going through this, it does affect us all. We love them, we're concerned for them. And we want that to change. But I see this process that God takes people and churches through. There can be a shaking that comes where He just gets us awakened from whatever the slumber is. And that, that moves us. We, we get shaken and we start to do exactly what Revelation 3 talks about. We start to remember things again. And that moves us to want to make some resolutions. I want to go from apathy to passion. I want to go from complacency to action. But, but, but more than just having those resolutions, we repent of the things that got us there in the first place. And that repentance starts to bring renewal. Or if you will, back to the fireplace, the flame starts to come again. 
And it gets hotter. And here's what it does. If you notice this in a fireplace, the fire's over here and there's some other stuff over here. And the, the heat of this affects that over here. And that's what the good of the body is. When individually we get stoked and stirred again, it will not help but affect other people in the church, all throughout your church. And then rebuilding comes and we start to see revival. Not first with 500 new people, but with those already gathered, passionate again, fanned into flame again. Now, am I saying that's over your whole church? First of all, I'm not saying it authoritatively. It's just my impression. But I share it with you because think, oh my goodness, God, you've got purposes for Lakeview. But maybe there's something you want to do in them first so that then you can do it through them and reach those out there. I mentioned running. I take heart with running. Uh, Buddy and I, we're doing a half marathon in two weekends. They're much more friendly than a marathon. (laughs) But it's long enough that you know what's going to happen. You just, you reach points in the run where your energy's gone. You know, you're still going, but <laughs> barely. Uh, your joints lock up. Lactic acid starts moving in places you don't want it to move. But you push through that and you find that second wind. And I love that when you get to the end of the race, assuming there's still some people behind you that you can actually watch finish. And you watch them coming, and you saw some of them. You remember them from the course. You remember when they were breathing a little harder, when they stopped to do this for a moment, when they were doing this on a telephone pole. But when they're coming down the chute on whatever street it is in downtown Orlando, nobody's limping. They're coming full bore. And it's a beautiful sight. Now, the analogy breaks down, but can we remember something, brothers and sisters? This, this walk of faith, this partnership you have with one another in a local church, it is not a 100-meter dash. It's not one lap around the track. It is a long, slow race in the same direction. And let's not be surprised and let's not be condemned if we find ourselves in seasons where... Oh, God's going to meet you in that place and fill you in that place so that you can keep going. So let no one, even if you feel like you're that person with, man, I'm at, I need agitated, let no one be condemned because God has put this here for our good and his mercy and because he's got many, many more works to do through you individually, through your partnership in this local church. Can I speak directly to the 30 and unders? I'm sure some of you have got it, but I'm burdened for the next generation. I'm burdened for you. I'm burdened for your friends who aren't here this morning. Who of you will rise up? Who of you will humbly go to your peers and say, It's our time. It's our time. So much of what we enjoy and have experienced in our local church has been built on those who've gone ahead of us. It's our time. Who will rise up? Who will take the baton? Well, let me close. It's time to close. Jesus closed. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to you individually? Is he saying something to you? It's not the same for everyone. You may be one of those who, who right now you do find your fire of faith roaring. Praise God for that. God intends to spread that. Maybe you've had trials, tribulations, circumstances that have seemed to dampen that. Well, praise God for his word that's intended to meet you right now. Maybe you, maybe you hear the clarion call of the Spirit to wake up this morning, that he is speaking to you. I want to close in a song. You know this song, and would you stand with me, please? It's called Take My Life. It's the Chris Tomlin version. Maybe, maybe more than, we're singing take my life, but maybe what the Lord is speaking to you would be, Lord, take my complacency, take my apathy, take my nominalism, take, take those things, Lord, that, that are quenching the flame in my life for you. Take those things. There's a line in this song, remember early in worship, Chris mentioned, some of the stuff we sing is dangerous. Well, there's a dangerous line in this song. Here am I all for thee. You follow that? Here am I all for thee. I I believe for some of us, it's not all of us this morning. I submit this to you. I believe for some of us this morning is a demarcation point. This morning is a time of consecration. And it has to do with that line. Lord, here am I all of me not part of me not not most of me not five days out of seven me no Lord take me I just want to remember you this morning and ask you to fill me here I am and I am all for thee and I believe you know who you are in a most particular way you need that consecration I just want to encourage you to do something and that is even come forward and, and take these steps as a place of worship and an altar, if you will, of consecration. Before your family, your brothers and sisters, you, you're, not, you, you're not even necessarily confessing anything. You're just, you're, just, you're just communicating to Jesus, I want you to have all of me. And I see how it's been part lately. Spirit of God, please come. All any human voice can do is make suggestions. And that is all these are. So would you come and have your way in us? You have so much good in store for Lakeview. And Lord, there's no condemnation if we can humbly attest to the flame of our faith being less than vibrant. And the reason there's no condemnation is because you're merciful because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and because you've never based your love for us on our performance for you. Thank you that in our times of weakness, we can run to you. We can consecrate ourselves. We can come forward. We can respond in whatever way you call us to respond. Lord, would today represent something for many through remembering you? Would this be a time some would look back on and say, The Spirit of God met me that day. And I'm so grateful He did. Have your way in us now.
Guys, I just had a, a, a that picture aired presented of a big fire, big campfire where there's embers tucked in the edges and God poking his stick in here this morning in this campfire. And here's what I'd like to ask you to do as we sing this song. And Aaron had asked about, you know, folks responding and coming forward. I believe that in this campfire there are embers of what has been in your walk and in your life. And I want to ask the Lord this morning to kind of blow on the the fire of our lives. I want to gather us together in one place. I want to bring the embers close to one another. And we're just going to ask the spirit to blow upon our lives. And this is the impression. I don't want to limit it to this, but I believe that there are some here who you have been embers.